per for every dollar received or for every thousand dollars received in donations, how much impact is that charity achieving? Mm. And if they think the best way of achieving impact is by hiring someone whose wage is pretty expensive, um, but is a very high skilled person or is going to be an expert in some area that they need an expert in, or if they think that they need to have some marketing to do additional fundraising and that counts as overhead, um, or potentially they use some inputs or some medicines or some uh, I don't know, school inputs that are slightly more expensive. Um, if that achieves a better outcome, then I think they should go ahead and do that. Um, in a sense, the charity should know best uh, what they should spend their money on to achieve the impact. Uh, and what we should really do is hold them to a standard of um, trying to measure their impacts and their outcomes rather than their inputs. That again was Rosso O'Keefe O'Donovan, who's a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Oxford, where he's a developmental economist and chairperson of the board for One for the World, which is an organization that aims to alleviate global poverty by encouraging young people to pledge 1% of their income to highly effective charity organizations. My name is Asang Senaratna, and this is Lantern, a podcast about young people trying to change the world, trying to understand what that actually means. This was a long episode with Rossa and there was some great content in here and we couldn't cut it down to just one episode, so we've done two parts. Uh, this is the second part um, where we talked to him about measuring the impact of charities, the relationship between giving and happiness and exploring veganism and animal rights and also joined by a special guest host, Sam Musker. Enjoy. So, yeah, as you mentioned, you focus on the kind of human development camp because uh, that's where your skill set lies, so... That's where you can make the biggest impact. And one of the things you do is you're the, the chairman of One for the World, uh, a development-focused EA-aligned charity. So perhaps you can tell us more about what that specific organization does and what role you play in it. Yeah, so One for the World was started in 2014 uh, by a couple of MBA students, so Josh McCann and Kate Epstein, who were MBA students at the Wharton School um, at the University of Pennsylvania. And their idea was... Um, there are a ton of students at Penn, at Wharton, at plenty of other universities, um, and people generally want to do good, but they don't really know the best way to do good. And this can prevent them from giving in a meaningful and effective way. Um, so it's out one for the world, uh, with the kind of goal of encouraging students to donate 1% of their income after they graduate to effective charities. Um, and to also build, help build the effective altruism movement um, and help to encourage people to uh, kind of think about effectiveness in their donation decisions. Um, so that's the goal of the organization. It's, we've been going for about three years. Uh, I got involved on, uh, fairly early on on the side of choosing which charities to recommend to our members. Um, we now also partner with another organization called The Life You Can Save that was founded by the philosopher Peter Singer. So we partner with them in selecting our charities, um, and we have 20 charities that people can give to that have been vetted, and there's a lot of um, evidence that what they're doing is having a big impact on people living in poverty. Um, and we recommend them to our members, and we're now moving, I think, about $200,000 a year from people who've graduated from a handful of schools um, where we have a presence. Um, so it's uh, Wharton, uh, Penn Undergrads, uh, Penn Law, uh, Columbia, MIT and Harvard has Harvard Business School and Harvard Law School. Uh, they're the kind of more established chapters, and then we have a few chapters at other schools in the US as well. 
I'm gonna caveat again saying, full disclosure, I'm a student ambassador for One for the World as well um, at Penn. But with, with evaluating charities, can you tell us how that works? What, what, what are you guys looking at? Because um, we mentioned this at the start, but I don't think we, we went quite in depth. In terms of how, how does that process work? How, what, are the, what are the metrics you're looking at? And is it purely you know, data-driven or is there qualitative aspects you look at? Could you kind of walk us through a process of when you look at a charity, what, how do you evaluate them? Yeah, so um, I will give you a kind of high-level picture in terms of how sure. One for the World uses. And if you want, I can go into a bit more detail um, sure. in terms of what uh, charity evaluators do when they get into real depth. So uh, One for the World has a system where we've partnered with the Life You and Save. Uh, so Life You and Save is this other organization with a very similar um, kind of goal to us, but they're not focused on students, where we're focused on students at, um, at professional schools and undergraduate mm -hmm. schools. Um, so we partner with them. Uh, the Life You Can Save has a panel of four experts. Um, so these are people who are kind of leaders in the philanthropy space um, or development economists. And they have curated this list of 20 highly effective charities. Um, and our members can choose to give to, they can choose to split their donation between all 20 organizations, or they can choose to give to one of the organizations, or they can give to another um, set of charities. This is a subset of the 20, which we call our top picks. So we currently have five top picks. Um, and these are five charities that we choose every year um, with a group of students uh, who are members in some of our chapters in, in some of our different schools. Um, and that's the process I lead. So we have this two-step process. The first step is Lighting Save chooses 20 organizations um, with the help of experts. And then we choose uh, five organizations based on uh, which organizations we think uh, kind of fit in well with the ethos of One for the World and our members. So some of this is to do with um, how simple their programs are, like can we communicate them well to, to people who, who might want to um, join One for the World, uh, how good their track record is. Um, so we're, we're quite keen to have like more established low-risk charities. So when um, Josh and Kate set up One for the World, they didn't want members of One for the World to have to go away and uh, do extra research. And they wanted to make sure we were, we had a kind of what we call like a low risk portfolio. Um, mm. That people can be very sure their money is actually having an impact. Um, and then we look at other things uh, like, is there good cultural fit? So we started in a business school and uh, our members were really excited about charities that um, kind of had a, a social entrepreneurship aspect. So right, right. a good example is uh, Give Directly, where you give money directly to people and they often uh, kind of invest it in their businesses, uh, help to grow their way out of poverty. Another one is um, Living Goods, which is a charity where um, women in, uh, I think, Uganda um, are, are kind of given a set of goods uh, that they sell in their local communities and communities nearby. And these goods are goods which have been shown to kind of decrease deaths from um, malaria or diarrhea. So it might be oral rehydration salts. Um, as they go out and actually get them to the people who need them, because one challenge in developing countries is distribution networks. It's hard to get goods we know work and improve people's health and improve their lives to the people that need them most. Um, so yeah, that, that's a kind of big picture of uh, how One for the World comes up with its portfolio of 20 and then its subset portfolio of our top picks. 
Um, in terms of how you choose that portfolio of 20, um, and when you really get into the, the details of an individual organization. Um, so the organization that does this best, I think, is GiveWell. And again, like full disclosure, I just worked for them for nine months earlier this year. Um, and they, they go really deep into, um, into a charity, but they actually kind of have a two-step process themselves where they first look at um, what they call priority programs. So they try to, they look at a range of different interventions or programs that a charity might do. So it might be distributing bed nets to prevent malaria, or it might be distributing deworming medicine, um, or it might be some education interventions. And they first look at the actual intervention and how much evidence there is that that intervention works. So they'll look at the, excuse me, they'll look at the economics literature, they'll look at the public health literature, um, and figure out, does this intervention work? Then if there's a strong amount of evidence that it has a positive impact, then I'll say, well, how big is this impact for the cost that it takes to, uh, to implement this intervention? What, what's the cost effectiveness of this intervention? Um, and if the cost effectiveness is high, then this is a good candidate to be one of their priority programs. Um, I think they have, say, 10 or 20 priority programs at the moment. There's a good list on their website. Um, and then they start looking for organizations that implement these programs. Um, so the Against Malaria Foundation distributes these uh, bed nets to prevent malaria transmission. And then they look at a bunch of other qualitative factors, like how well is this charity run? Um, what is their need for more funding? For example, like how would they spend additional dollars if we if we move donations to them? Um, what are their kind of long run goals? Um, they do some field visits for their recommended charities. They'll go and see what the operations are on the ground. They'll do a bunch of in-depth interviews uh, to understand their finances, to understand where they'd spend additional money. And they really go into a huge amount of depth on um, what these charities would do with additional donations. Uh, yeah, go on, Sam. Yeah, I'd like to, to pick up on one thing that you mentioned very briefly, which is uh, the extent to which a charity needs additional funding. Uh, because I think there's there's a tension in there. Because on the one hand, you're you're evaluating how uh, how clear is the data driven case that the organisation is doing good, and you're evaluating to what extent does this charity need additional funding. And the tension that seems to me to be there is that uh, the more clear the data supporting that intervention is, the less in need of further funding they would need, they would be uh, because it's easier for them to, to market themselves to other funders. So then there's, there's the issue where if you want to give to the most data-driven organizations, you might be giving to the most obvious organizations and the organizations which would be most able to source funding elsewhere. Whereas if you want to give to the charities which are less able to source other funding and which need your funding most, you might be giving to the organizations which have uh, a more difficult to sell intervention strategy, which might be higher level and so then less amenable to data. So how do you rec reconcile those two metrics? Yeah, so I, I kind of wish the world works like this, but I don't think it actually does. So I, th I think the best example is um, bed nets. For, so so you, bed nets, you basically hang over your bed when you go to sleep in an area where malaria is endemic and it stops mosquitoes from biting you during the night and the vast majority of malaria infections come from bites during the night. I think it's yeah, the yeah. pregnant female mosquito which infects people with malaria the most. 
So bed nets, we have known that they're very effective in reducing um, the rates of malaria infection for a long time. There have been very good studies on this. Um, there's good economics papers which show that free distribution is better than uh, charging people a small fee, even if it's massively subsidized, um, because people are more likely to take the nets and they're more likely to use the nets in the long run. Um, so we kind of have known uh, what to do to prevent malaria cases and to drive down the number of cases of malaria for a long time. But there's still a big funding gap. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this, is, this kind of speaks to the fact that the vast majority of donors and the vast majority of money uh, trying to uh, reduce poverty isn't as data-focused as we might hope. Um, so the Against Malaria Foundation, who's GiveWell's, one of GiveWell's top recommended charities, still has a significant funding gap, and they do every year. There was actually one year where they didn't, and GiveWell stopped recommending them. Uh, this was, I think, 2013, 2014, somewhere around then. Um, GiveWell projected that based on their plans for more distributions, they probably didn't need additional money that year, and so recommended other charities instead. But that's the only case I know of where um, where a charity is so effective and there's so much evidence that what they're doing is working that they haven't been able mm-hmm. to spend the money that they've been given fast enough. Um, that's so interesting. I, I kind of hope we move into that world, and I hope mm-hmm. that um, in 10 years or 15 years, the very best charities will be fully funded, and you then move down to the mm-hmm. next kind of set of charities and... Um, say, okay, if the Against Malaria Foundation can't use more dollars usefully, let's move to the next most effective charity. Um, and, and it should work like that. that. That'll be a great improvement, I think. You mentioned this, um, th- this metric of charities being run well. Often, when, you, when you're donating on a not-for-profit space, there's this obsession with overhead costs and... Often with social enterprises, you see them marking themselves as 100% of, you know, your, your purchase or the proceeds from this purchase will go to charity or um, their causes or um, charities who are openly market saying, you know, X amount of your dollar will, will go to the person in need. When you're evaluating whether charities run well, where does overhead costs come into it? And is that an important metric? Is that something that is a good indicator of whether a charity is actually doing well? Yeah, um, we, we don't place any emphasis on it, really. Um, what we really care about is uh, the impact per dollar donated. And I, I think this has been a kind of damaging meme uh, for a long time, that overhead should be an important metric mm-hmm. to rate charities on. Um, I think if, like, for people who've worked in the nonprofit sector, it's very frustrating because you often can't spend money on things that would be useful for achieving your impacts. Um, I've seen this when I've worked for charities. I've heard of other people working for charities. Um, and it, there's been a real pushback in the last few years on using overhead as a metric. Um, so what GiveWell really care about and what effective altruism and One for the World care about is per, for every dollar received or for every thousand dollars received in donations, how much impact is that charity achieving? Mm-hmm. And if they think the best way of achieving impact is by hiring someone whose wage is pretty expensive um, but is a very high-skilled person or is going to be an expert in some area that they need an expert in. Or if they think that they need to have some marketing to do additional fundraising and that counts as overhead. Um, Or potentially they use some inputs or some medicines or some, uh, I don't know, school inputs that are slightly more expensive. Um, 
if that achieves a better outcome, then I think they should go ahead and do that. Um, in a sense, the charity should know best uh, what they should spend their money on to achieve the impact. Uh, and what we should really do is hold them to a standard of um, trying to measure their impacts and their outcomes rather than their inputs. Um, I think the best analogy here is, well, when you buy a computer, you don't ask, well, how much of your $1,000 on your new MacBook um, was spent on marketing or how much was spent on salaries for uh, the overhead <laughs> of the CEO. You care if it's a good MacBook. And it's the same yeah. with charity. You should care how many lives you save or how many kids you send to school or how much you increase people's income. Um, so yeah, it, it's quite frustrating, I think, for people in a nonprofit sector to, to still be asked this question, well, how much do you spend on salaries and mm -hmm. rent in New York or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, one for the world. Um, this this one percent figure. Um, how, how where do you guys um, come to this one percent figure? Because I know the justification that's um, typically given, and something that you know, as student ambassadors, we're told to um, push is that one percent. It's not that large. You know, the average American donates, I think, three percent, if I'm I'm correct. Um, so, you know, you can just get started, you can delay your donation. So, you know, students are pretty tight financially. So when you start working, then you can start donating or you can donate part of your internship salary. So it, it's not a large percentage. Um, but the, the problem there is that are we setting the bar too low in the sense that people will see the 1% and think that's okay. I've done, I've done my good. And increasingly, you know, with, um, social enterprises and you know you can buy your pair of Tom's shoes and um, thank you water in Australia for example people can think their kind of need to give or is fulfilled in other forms as well and then we have this one percent compounding the fact is it that we're not donating enough or we're reducing the amount that we give to these charities that need the funding yeah if I can jump in uh, just about like the one percent figure if you imagine that the whole world was one country uh, and it's a super, super unequal country. If the world were one country, it would be more unequal than any country in the world, I think. Uh, and if you imagine that that one super country had a 1% top bracket income tax for the top 10% of earners, you would never expect that country to, to equalize with a 1% top bracket income tax. So why do we think that uh, even if 100% of the developed world gave 1% of their income. Why do we think that that's, that's enough? Yeah, so there's a few parts to this answer. I'll talk about, I'll first talk about One for the World and, and um, like the, the background to, to why we came to 1%. And then I'll talk more about, I think, a more general question about um, like if, if the world was one country, then what would we want it to look like? Which I think is a really interesting kind of thought experiment. Um, but I'll start with One for the World. We, um, we chose 1% because we wanted it to be a very uh, broad-based movement and like kind of mass market movement. Um, and, and we were aware of the fact that the average American gives, I think, 3% or I think depending on the numbers, some people say 2.6%, 2.7%. Um, but yeah, more than 1% are income to charity. Um, and, and so we have, we, we initially said uh, our members should give 1% of income to charity. We've started uh, kind of moving the emphasis to at least 1% of their income. So, so to become a member, to take the pledge for One for the World, it has to be at least 1%. It could be 1%, it could be more. And, and we do try and encourage people now to give more than 1%. Um, 
But we also recognize, and this gets back to the point earlier, that, that people aren't just trying to uh, maximize the amount of good they do with their donations in a very calculated, effective, altruist way. Um, and a lot of our messaging is about, well, if you want to give to your high school, if you want to give to your church, if you want to give to a charity working in the US or uh, a cancer charity or, or something that is like very close to your heart, go ahead and, and still do that. But, but what we're asking is that 1% of your income is spent uh, donating to charities where there is a large evidence base, where we do have um, very good evidence that's going to have a big impact on people's lives in developing countries. Um, so we, talk, we often talk about people's uh, donation portfolio. Um, and one of our board members, um, a guy called Rob, uh, wrote a really nice blog post recently um, talking about his personal donation decisions. And he goes through, uh, each year he goes through and he says, well, which uh, different causes do I want to give money to? And, and some of them are domestic US-based causes. Some of them are things which are very close to his heart. Uh, but he wants to give at least 1%, which is kind of optimized in some way for impact. So that's where, that's where we came out um, as an organization. And, and the, the hope is this makes effective altruism and effective giving more accessible and more attractive to, mm. to a broader base of people. Um, because the reality is, um, and you mentioned this earlier, like effective altruism in its uh, purest form is not going to appeal to the majority of people. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is kind of like a bunch of slightly nerdy people who think very hard about these questions and spend a lot of their time thinking about where they should donate their money or how they should spend their career. The reality is mm. most people aren't going to aren't going to spend that amount of time or um, have a huge uh, huge level of donations. Um, so yeah, we, we're trying to make it very accessible and very, I guess, mass market. Um, in terms of is 1% too low when you take like a bigger picture view of things and, and you gave the example of, well, if the world was one country. Um, so, I mean, one part of that is people do still pay their taxes. Um, and if the world was one country, I guess we'd be saying, well, everyone should pay their taxes they currently pay plus 1% extra um, or plus 3% extra. Um, from an ethical perspective, I think you also have to think about... Um, what the kind of long run goal is and the long run impact you would achieve is. Uh, so Peter Singer, who's a famous philosopher who focused on um, morality and ethics, he's written about the fact that uh, if you kind of, uh, if, if you agree with utilitarianism in, in a strong form, you might think that we should be giving away nearly all of our income to um, the most effective charities. But the reality is, it would be very hard to sustain that over a longer period of time. Um, so effective altruism has kind of come up with this uh, kind of compromise where people often uh, choose a number, choose a percentage, and then reevaluate it each year and say, well, how was my life giving away 3% or 4% or 5%? Um, did I feel happy? Did I feel I could make all the expenditures necessary to kind of lead a nice flourishing life in my community? Was I able to go out with my friends? Was I able to spend money on normal mm -hmm. stuff? And if the answer is yes, then maybe I'll reevaluate and increase my giving a bit next year. Um, so this approach I've been taking for a few years and try and reevaluate it around this time of year, uh, look back at what I've given and, and what more I would like to give the next year. Or maybe in some cases, maybe I feel I'm at a good level or maybe I should reduce it a little bit. Um, because the reality is, if I was giving away 60% of my income, um, I would be 
living in a pretty shoddy apartment because I'm in London and it's a very expensive city <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't be able to go out with my mates and I'll probably be very quickly very unhappy and wouldn't be very productive in my job and actually my impact would be lower in the long run. Um, mm. So you do need to, I think you do need to look after yourself and effective altruism um, has spoken a lot about, about this. Like if you want to do good in the world, you do actually have to have an element of self-care, whether it's your physical health, your mental health, your kind of personal relationships, um, your relationships with friends, it's all really important, um, both for yourself and for the good you do in the world. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd imagine if you start giving a, a large proportion of your wealth, as you say, the, the opportunity cost come, becomes very clear. It's deciding, am I going to increase my donations by a percent or am I going to, I don't know, buy my child a new laptop? Um, and so it just becomes very direct way ups, which mm. makes me, which makes me think perhaps given how direct the way ups are in personal giving, uh, and therefore how unappealing it is to the majority of people, might it not be a better strategy to focus on lobbying developed world governments to increase the amount that they spend on international development mm. aid rather than, uh, trying to, trying to get individuals to voluntarily give up money with all of these very direct way-ups that they, that they then have to think of on a personal level. Because, uh, mm. for example, like Sweden gives something like 1.7% of GDP per year to development aid. The US gives something like 0.17%. So perhaps there's, perhaps there's a lot to be done in increasing those donations up to, up to a higher level rather than focusing on individuals. And I'm also curious, sorry, to just jump in, tack on one more thing, is that in terms of those um, government-backed development agencies, so like your Australia Aid, what's been their involvement in the effective altruism movement? Has there been a push from, you know, effective altruists to, to go to government as well and say, look, this is where you can get the most bang for your buck, or is there more issues um, tied in to that, I guess, global political issues as well? Yeah, so I have a few points on this. Um, first, first thing I wanted to pick up on was, was something you said, Sam, about um, it being very demanding of people, and it can be quite costly to give a significant proportion of your your income's charity. So before I get on to the advocacy question, um, I, I think we should push back on this idea because most of the research indicates that people who give more are actually happier um, and actually are more satisfied. So. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to know whether this is a causal relationship, like maybe they're giving more to charity because they're happier and more satisfied, or maybe giving to charity causes them to be happier or more satisfied. It's very hard to disentangle that. Um, but I do think the people I know in the effective altruism movement really feel that it's a big part of their life and they feel their life has a lot more meaning and are very satisfied by, by being part of this movement and really thinking hard about how to do good. So. I, I just want to point out, I, I found it really personally satisfying and it's, it's become a big part of my life and, and made me a lot happier, I think. Um, I, I think I'm lucky enough to have always been pretty happy, actually. Um, but, but yeah, EA, Effective Altruism, has really helped with that in, in the last few years. Um, so I don't think it is hugely demanding, unless you went to the levels of like 40, 50, 60% mm -hmm. your income where it was having a material impact on what you can do. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I just wanted to kind of mention that. But then the wider point is about, um, well, should we be thinking at a more institutional level? Should we be thinking about political advocacy to raise mm. um, 
more money for these development interventions or to increase the effectiveness of these development interventions. Um, and there has been some efforts on that in effective altruism. So one thing I worked on a few years ago um, was a report on a group called Results, um, where Results is a kind of grassroots network that lobbies uh, US politicians to raise funding uh, for the USAID program. And they, they have some evidence, some suggestive evidence that they've been very effective in the past. And so if you give a dollar to results, then you, you might estimate that it might raise uh, X number of dollars, maybe six, seven, eight, nine, ten dollars um, more funding for aid spending of the US. And this seems like you're getting a big uh, increase in your leverage or your bang for the buck of your donation. I think there's a lot to be said for this, for this approach. Um, the difficulty we had when, when we uh, wrote this report was, although their past effectiveness seemed pretty high, there was no way of knowing whether the actual amount in the USAID budget um, was related to the activities of results. So it, it was very <coughs> difficult to come up with that, with that estimate. And the second challenge was, even if we did have that estimate, it would be very difficult to see what effects they would have in the future. So suppose there was some charity that had been really effective under the Obama administration at increasing the amount of money allocated to aid. Mm. Uh, who knows how they would fare under the Trump administration? It's very difficult to, to get a good guess for that. Um, mm. And so maybe this is an area where we have this measurability bias that we spoke about earlier, where mm. effective altruism has tended not to recommend donating to these organizations. Um, and I think it would be quite reasonable to donate to one of these organizations. Um, mm. So that's one thing effective altruism has done. Another is uh, there is a small group of effective altruists in Washington, D.C., who have set up a, I think it's a think tank, that actually actively lobbies on these measures. And so there's <laughs> people who have said, well, maybe the best use of my career is to go and lobby in Washington and try and increase <laughs> the amount of spending, or to increase the effectiveness of this spending. Right, right. Um, they're very new. I think they're quite young and small. I don't know if they've had any successes yet. But they tried to mobilize people in the EA community uh, for some acts last year to do with funding. Um, and yeah, I, I'm not sure where they're at at the moment. And then the other um, effort I've seen in the UK is based on effectiveness of aid spending, where a guy, Toby Ord, who founded Giving What We Can, he was invited to go to the Prime Minister's office, so number 10 Downing Street in the UK, and give advice on where people, where our development uh, uh, development department, the, de the, the Department for International Development, differed where they should be spending their money and which interventions have more evidence. Um, so there has been some work on this in the effective altruism movement. Um, as you point out, it's, it's not like the main focus of EA. It's also not the focus of One for the World. But I think you can quite validly uh, think that this is the best way to spend your time or money um, because of the leverage you get on your, on your time or money. Um, I'm just conscious of the time, Rosso. It's hit um, 12.30 here. Um, so uh, don't want to keep you too long. Uh, Perhaps we can just wrap up with a discussion of uh, like veganism and animal rights. Yeah, yeah. Since um, that's something you mentioned um, you're quite uh, a big advocate for. So, yeah, in terms of uh, eth ethical eating, I guess, as a whole. Uh, so... From, from my understanding, you're a vegan. Um, what led to that decision? Where, where, where did you come to that? Yeah, so this was a big change in my life. Um, I ate meat for most of my life until I was 22, 23. Um, and then I became vegetarian, but not because I cared about animals. Um, 
because I was worried about the effects on climate change and also the price of staple foods in developing countries. So in 2007, there was a food crisis in the Horn of Africa. And there was some evidence that part of this was to do with increasing meat demand, um, basically because when you raise cows for meat, they eat a lot of uh, grains, or, or when you raise other animals for meat, they eat a lot of grains. The demand for grains increased, and the price of grains increased, which meant people in the Horn of Africa um, really struggled to, to afford uh, their, staple, uh, their staple crops. Um, this basically because grains are traded as a commodity in the international market, so the prices of them really fluctuate as... Um, as global demand fluctuates. So that's why I became vegetarian. Um, but at the time, I would openly say to people, I wouldn't become a vegan because I don't care about animals while people are still dying of diarrhea or <laughs> malaria in the world. Um, and then through effective altruism, I met people who, who convinced me of uh, the fact that I should care about animals. Um, and so the reason I ultimately became vegan is, is twofold. One is, uh, the evidence seems to indicate that animals are conscious, um, they do suffer, or they are sentient, which is the word that moral philosophers tend to use for animals feeling or being capable of um, pain or subjective well-being. Um, so, yeah, it, my understanding is that the evidence is pretty conclusive that um, the animals that we typically eat are sentient, are capable of suffering. Um, and at the same time, the conditions in which our animals are farmed are much, much worse than I had initially thought. Um, so once I started looking into this, um, I, for example, thought that the majority of chickens in the UK were free-range chickens where they were allowed to go outside and kind of were on a grass-raised pasture and they could wander around and had like reasonably free and open lives. Turns out that 50% of chickens in the UK are still brought up in cages. Um, the number is much, much higher in the US. Uh, and these cages can be very small. And like, so the chicken spends its whole life in a cage in very extreme confinement, uh, unable to move, unable to flap its wings, uh, unable to kind of freely roam or, or have any sort of uh, positive experience. Um, so, so the situation in the UK is bad. The situation in the US, I think, is much worse. Uh, factory farming is uh, much more... Uh, common, like a higher proportion of animals in the US are factory farmed. I think it's 97% of farmed animals are on factory farms in one way or another. Um, and the regulations are a lot looser, so the cages are smaller. You can have five or six birds in a reasonably small cage, um, where this, the amount of space per chicken is about the size of a letter-sized sheet of paper or an A4 sheet of paper. Um, and so, so these animals kept in awful conditions, and there's also huge, huge numbers of animals. So in the US, there are about 9 billion chickens uh, slaughtered every year. Uh, that's more than a population of the world of humans. And so I'm now convinced that um, animal welfare and animal suffering is one of the biggest problems, if not the biggest problem, that we face in the world today um, from an ethical perspective. Uh, the amount of suffering on factory farms is huge like absolutely astronomical um and this led me to a change my personal diet by becoming vegan um and b begin to shift some of my work into animal advocacy and some research in economics on uh on animal agriculture though i've kind of only just dabbled uh in that at the moment uh, but i think in the future i'll begin to explore that area more so you mentioned you mentioned two main motivators uh with regard to your eating there's the environmental factors and there's the animal rights factors directly. 
Uh, and what I've noticed is a bit of a tension between those two in some cases. Um, because there are a lot of people I know who eat meat, but try to eat meat uh, more ethically. So they'll eat like free range, uh, free range meat. Um, when it comes to vegetables and grains, they'll eat organic. Um, but the tension is that actually the highly commercialized uh, modes of agriculture um, and things like battery farming actually use a lot less resources when it comes to water, when it comes to energy, when it comes to pollution per unit of meat that's produced than uh, more ethical kind of ways of eating. Um, so I think a lot of people like eat free range, pat themselves on the back and then think that they've done good for the world, but they've actually doubled or tripled their resource consumption uh, related to the, to the food. So what do you think about that tension? So um, I, I think the tension is real. Uh, I used to make decisions that I now would not make because I cared about the climate change aspects of animal agriculture and not the animal welfare aspects. So I used to, I went through a reasonably short period, but I did go through a period of buying caged eggs because they were better for the environment. Um, and then I had a conversation with a friend who was pretty appalled and explained the conditions that the chickens lived in to, to uh, produce those eggs. Um, and, and so I think this is a classic case of you have two potential outcomes of your decision. So the environmental ones and the animal welfare outcomes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's useful and important to try and make a comparison of the size of the effect of each of them. And, and so now, previously, I placed virtually no, um, no weight on the welfare of animals. But now I think, and I know that animals are sentient, I think that the conditions that they uh, are reared in are pretty awful. And so I think the suffering per unit of meat I would buy is much, much more important than the climate change um, implications from, uh, from that consumption. So that's, um, that's one thing to consider is, is like you have this trade-off, but I think one moral problem is much, much more important, the animal welfare uh, aspects than the contribution to climate change. And then the other part of this answer is actually more convenient because I don't think there is a trade-off if you become vegan in that uh, you will both be reducing your climate footprint and reducing the suffering of animals. And, and I think it's also true if you become vegetarian. Um, I think there's, a, there's another trade-off that you make when you become ve vegan, though, because so as an effective altruist, uh, you don't necessarily care about feeling better about how you eat. You care about like reducing the total amount of meat consumption, uh, whether it's by your own direct actions or by your influence on the people around you. Um, so what do you think about the fact that perhaps uh, reducing your meat consumption and trying to get others to do the same versus becoming vegan and then realistically not really being able to convince other people to, to follow your example to such, an, to such an extreme change? What do you think about the relative effect, efficacy of those two dietary changes in terms of like total impact? Mm. So this is a, a big debate in the animal rights and animal welfare advocacy movements at the moment. Um, and it's one where I feel quite strongly that um, we should have a long-term goal of eliminating the use of uh, animals in agriculture and in the food that we eat and the clothes that we wear. But I think we should be pragmatic about how we get to that goal. And I think we're more likely to be successful in achieving that goal sooner if we encourage people to think about this in a more uh, gradual way. Um, so for me personally, it took me 
nearly a year to move from being vegetarian to vegan and, and a similar from going from a meat-based uh, or omnivore diet to becoming vegetarian. And the way I did it is by trying one day a week as a vegan and seeing what that was like and getting used to it. Um, and then going two days, three days, four days and so on. Until And at each step, it was very straightforward because a lot of it is about changing habits, about what you cook or about where you eat or about what you order at a restaurant. A lot of it is learning, like new meals to cook, uh, new ingredients to use, new ways of getting protein, uh, new ways of getting iron or, or vitamin B12. Um, and so I took a very gradual approach. And I think for the vast majority of people, that is much more effective. And the other side of this argument is you have the same impact by getting seven people to reduce their meat consumption uh, by one day, to go vegetarian for one day, than you do by asking one person to be vegetarian 100% of the time. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think your intuition is right that having this, uh, what people call a reducitarian or flexitarian approach, uh, can be a lot more effective in reducing the overall demand for meat. And I also see it as the first step on, uh, on a kind of journey towards transforming our society in terms of where our food comes from. So your focus is on being a vegan yourself, but being a flexitarian in terms of what you kind of recommend to people around you. Um, so when I talk to people about this, I, I will be open about the fact that I think um, morally we probably shouldn't be, well, we sh I don't think we should be using animals for food. We certainly shouldn't be using them in the conditions that we currently are. And the end goal, I think, should be to eliminate our use of animals in the food system. Um, but I'm also very open about the fact that I ate meat most of my life. And when I stopped eating meat, it was a very gradual approach. Um, mm -hmm. So I think we should have the long-term goal of um, eliminating meat and animal products from our diets. But I think how we get there is probably going to be more effective if we take a more incremental approach. Um, so so that, that's, the, that's the way I'd frame it in conversations with people. I think uh, we might have to call it there um, just because... Uh, We've, we've talked for a bit. Um, the last question we've got, um, is there anything else uh, you'd like to add on to um, what we've talked about? And then secondly, it's again something we like to ask everyone who comes on. Uh, is there any resources um, you'd recommend for young people who are looking to make an impact or, or make a difference knowing that um, that's who's listening out there and any other advice you would have if um, to young people want to make a difference? Yeah, so... Um a few kind of resources. One, I think the best book you can read on this stuff is Doing Good Better by Will McCaskill. Um, so Will is a brilliant guy. He's a philosopher. He's young. He's like in his early 30s. And he's associate professor at Oxford. Um, and he wrote this book a couple of years ago now. Um, but it's kind of, I think, the best introduction to effective altruism and the ideas behind it. And, and we've kind of touched on a few different topics that so that book will go into in a lot more detail. So whether it's... Um, animal welfare, but also the effects of um, our actions on the well-being of people who might live in the future. Uh, the, the book is a brilliant introduction to effective altruism. And then the other resource I would recommend would be 80,000 Hours, which um, we didn't have the chance to talk about much. Uh, but this, I think, is a really, really uh, important and useful resource for deciding what to do with your career. So, so the name of the organization is based on the fact that we have 80,000 hours in our career, roughly. Um, and effective altruists will argue well, you should try and think carefully about how to do the most good with those 80,000 hours. Um, so that organization has been doing research on um, careers and career choices and decisions for uh, probably six, seven, eight years now. They've got a huge amount of uh, resources online. I think the single best thing you can do on their website is um, go through their 
career guide. Uh, so it's a series of articles followed by kind of interactive questionnaires um, about your different career options. Um, I found this incredibly useful um, when deciding what to do after my PhD um, because it, for me there are a bunch of different options. I could go into policy, I could go to the private sector, I could stay in academia, I could do something completely different. Um, and to to kind of think through these options in a very structured way and think through different factors that might come into my decision, I found really, really useful. Um, and it really clarified my thinking about which option was best for me. Um, so I'd recommend uh, any any people out there who are kind of thinking about their careers to check out 8,000 hours. Um, yeah, especially like when you're younger and, and these decisions are very important and pretty intimidating. Um, yeah, those are the two. I, uh, I could send you any others if I think of them uh, yep, after we yep. finish up. Um, cool. cool. Sounds good. Awesome. Thanks so much for your for your time, Ross. I really uh, really appreciate. It. Yeah, thank you. That was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to listening when when it comes out. Thank you again for listening to part two of our 11th episode of Lantern. That again was Rosso O'Keefe O'Donovan, who's a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Oxford, where he is a developmental economist and chairperson of the board for One for the World. You can find all the books, research, and organizations that Rosso mentioned in the show notes. And this was a longer episode, and there was some great content in here that we didn't want to cut down to just one episode. So we've done two parts. This is the second part of the episode. You can go back uh, and listen to the first part if you haven't catched that before, but there will be a completely new episode dropping next Sunday across all our platforms. That's iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you did enjoy the show, please, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us grow and share these amazing conversations with more and more people across the globe. You can also keep up to date with um, the latest content we're pushing out on Facebook, Instagram, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Twitter, which are all under Project Lantern underscore, all one word, Project Lantern underscore, and of course on our website, projectlantern.com.au. If you have any feedback for us or just want to say hi, you can reach out to us anytime on our social media or via email at hello at projectlantern.com.au. Again, we're really excited to have you on this journey in creating a global launchpad for youth at social impact. Until next time, stay awesome.